0: a I've burned
1: everything I've got. No don't to worry the A new world order. But we are here to destroy the control over the industry of other people. I did not trade arms for us. It's been time to Hello, good morning, good evening, welcome to Myth After Dark, so I guess good evening. Uh, This is the program that we do basically when we are at a loss for content or something falls through. Uh, People who have been with us for a while probably know that. uh, We do not have Hank this evening, and I had some fucking shit happen happen to me this weekend, so I I wasn't really able to prep for a show. Involved the woods and um, a truck that really didn't belong in the woods, and yeah, I won't bore you with the details, good listener, but for those of you who are new to the program, which is probably none of you, in fact, Adam uh, do we ever have new listeners? Is that a thing that happens? Because I'm usually of the assumption that we have only the listeners who have uh, always listened to the program.
0: You know, it's it's hard to know because we live in this anonymous uh, space of the political world. Uh, but the subscriber count is, is growing. Uh, however, uh, after YouTube kicked us Super, off yeah. uh we we started at a much smaller base and so it's still not quite where it used to be but yeah from looking at where the mp3s well, and and the bit shoot is it, we i'm sure we still have some growth
1: yeah adam has the metrics. i mean it real real talk i guess if you are a new listener to the program i am kind of curious about that why don't you write into adam and tell him <laughs> that and maybe tell us how it is you came across the program because we make no effort to promote this program uh, <laughs> really none whatsoever i mean we we let people who are aware of the program know that we have new episodes up and that's not going to change in the future so i don't know it's just a curiosity but yeah this is where we we basically shitpost for an hour or so uh talk about some things in fact we do have something resembling show prep today insofar as there is a topic that uh, we are going to discuss, which is probably going to be the least requested topic.
0: Yeah, and I have a done. surprise prepared uh, for you it.
1: You can maybe stick around. Well, which, hold on. Which is also there. uncommon. Oh, excellent. Context. Okay. We have we have to
2: give some context. Uh, before we reveal oh, yeah. what that? What uh, you that lay down the context, Hans. Sounds... Yeah, before we reveal what the, yeah, yeah. Uh, the content is, um, there is a, a, uh, a well-known... Um, uh might we say German individual who harasses and campaigns for uh well his idea of content to show up on um many many platforms and uh some of you will know who this individual is uh he will remain nameless he is um he's bitched at me before for naming him, so I won't do it. But uh, at any level, he was curious why we haven't discussed uh, the topic of Star Trek for. And uh, although I think we have, we did one with Ethnarch a while back where we briefly touched on Star Trek. Uh, he was curious why it is we've never talked about it. Well, number one, um, I don't really watch a lot of Star Trek, although... They are in luck, because uh, there are two bona fide Trekkies. You might even bring out some, uh, some Klingon later in the episode. But um, before we get to that, before we get to the least requested content of all time, except by this um, strange German man... We have to uh, we have to talk about some recent news items. We do this occasionally when we're when we're bored or when we're just uh, in in shock. Um,
1: well, this is how I learn about the news.
2: Yeah, yeah. I think this is this might be how some of you learn about the news. If this is, um, I'm very honored that I could relay the the news to you. It's like a uh, far more racist. And funnier version of the uh, the old SNL Weekend Update. So, uh, in recent news, the mass shootings are back. Um, didn't take long for that to start happening again.
0: I mean, I'm not the only one, but I predicted this. It, it's like true. Work. I think
2: a lot of us predicted this that the the psyops would uh, start manifesting once again, and they happened in very rapid succession, which was. um, uh, weird, And they also seem to happen um, coinciding with certain cultural paradigms that were being promoted. Very odd, very odd how these things just sort of coincidentally take place once after another. Um, or, those of you who are not aware, which I, uh, I, I congratulate you for not being aware, uh, we had a, a shootout at an Asian massage parlor in. Georgia, the state, uh, in the southern United States, we had a shootout. And then we had a shootout the other day in um, Colorado uh,
1: at, a, uh, at a grocery when store, a grocery market. When you say shootout, do you mean that there were two people shooting at each other or nah? Uh, well, see, the one in...
2: Um, Georgia was a, a, a very strange gentleman um, uh, who claimed to have a massage parlor sex addiction, uh, and he shot up uh, a Korean massage parlor. Uh, and to my knowledge, no one shot back. Um, there were no shots or money shots or anything of the sort exchanged between any individuals during that encounter, um,
1: just gunshots. And um, well, I'm not sure why indentured sex slaves would be allowed weapons.
2: yeah, that's the thing. And so, looking beyond the basic headline, um, there were a couple of interesting things that happened in relation to this event that uh, are very curious. Number one, inside the United States, if we have any non-American listeners, um, I congratulate you for not being American. It, it things are not great here right now. Don't come here. Uh, there is a strange new cultural phenomena in America called "Stop Asian Hate." That um, has kind of come out of nowhere. Uh, to my mind, there wasn't even really an an Asian hate issue.
1: <laughs> that is this like is this that kind of situation where the Jews take the crimes that Negroes commit against Asian people and spin that into a narrative against uh, whitey.
2: You might exactly. say that situation. You might just say it's, that's what's, well, happening. it's
0: not just might. It's that's literally what they're doing there. Yeah. There are professors explaining how, uh, the white privilege is what enabled the Asians to, get attacked by blacks i'd have to pull the articles but you just you just search for this there's there's people in universities which you're paying for by the way with your tax dollars making it their job to assign responsibility from one group to a completely unrelated group to enlist this third group into their army and this is typical playbook uh Leninism this is communist I mean whatever you want to call it but it's uh, it's pretty much how I read it
2: well yeah and so you have to give some more background um, over the last few years there has been a very strange cultural shift against Asian Americans um, I'm not really sure where it began I I, I think that Ron Uns um, has nailed it. I
1: am going to guess it began in Oakland, California.
2: Well, I, I think that this, this, this recent trend, um, really seems to have begun, um, in earnest with the, uh, the decision by a, several Ivy league universities, uh, including Harvard to explicitly limit the number of Asian, um, or accepted students of Asian heritage to the university in the name of promoting uh, diversity across campus. Now, um, there are several lawsuits that have spun out of that that are somewhat still ongoing. Um, And this really started about four or five years ago, becoming a huge uh, cultural focal point is this discussion of uh, who are the new um, uh, sort of educational elites in America? And it just so happened that um, a great preponderance of them were, uh, were Asian. They were either foreign exchange students, nominally from mostly just Korea, Taiwan, Singapore, Indonesia, mainland China, um, occasionally Japanese, occasionally Vietnamese. Um, and that really was about it. You don't really have a lot of uh, Kyrgyzstani or uh, you know, Karakalpak or uh, Tajik presence. Um, and what was interesting, too, is that much of the, the cultural dialogue around this was explicitly sort of leaving um, subcontinental individuals out of the equation. And by some continental, I, of course, mean uh, people of Indian, Pakistani, and Bangladeshi descent, broadly. This seemed to be mostly focused against both American, uh, American citizens who are of Chinese heritage and uh, actual Chinese foreign exchange students, along with um, a great deal of Koreans who are both American citizens and exchange students. And something very interesting has begun ever since then, uh, several discussions, uh, I think starting in, in uh, the San Francisco school system more recently, uh, regarding the um, quote-unquote white nature of Asian Americans. And there are some school districts and some NGOs, some political bodies, some economic bodies uh, that at least we know of, although many more could be doing this secretly, as apparently Harvard was for some time, uh, that have begun to uh, acknowledge or at least permeate or perpetuate this belief that um, Asians are not worthy or this specific type of Asian, the sort of uh, coastal East Asian, mostly connected to the wider Chinese or Korean cultures, uh, are not, not POC. They are not people of color. They are either now going to be grouped in with whites or they are going to be regarded as their own separate category. But they are no longer allowed to be part of the broader anti white coalition, apparently.
1: Now. Yeah, I, let me give my two cent take on this before you continue. I, I just say I'm going to give a strong endorsement to the Jews who control, well, <laughs> I'm. I'm going to endorse the fact that the Jews who control the formerly Anglo-Saxon institutions in America are shutting these people out. I think that they should be filled to the brim with the least competent brown people from the darkest corners of the earth, because anything that isolates these people, by these people, I mean these rat people, and makes it more obvious to everyone else what's going on, because that's the thing. They're afraid of Asian nepotism, which is quite effective. I mean, if you go to any West Coast major city, you'll see that they are very effective, at the very least, at taking care of their own and putting a foothold in. And well, the, I think the most, Jews are afraid of that because they're they're, they're, they're an they're an effective competitor. And I think that it's it's best for like Muga Muga Buga to uh, be put as professor emeritus rather than Chang Chang. I think yeah. in the long run, it's better. I, I think from that, our perspective, at least my perspective. Well, I think part of it is that
2: um, if you go back further, you know the the anti-Asian stuff used to be much more simple. Now it's much much more complicated, where there's this, now there's this sort of metaphysical discussion around how white certain Asians are, which is just an absolute insane uh
1: white has become code word for competence
2: yeah and i think that more (laughs) i think accidentally it's basically (laughs) i don't know what they're alluding to it's like i guess it's more broad like eurasian or you know you have like some neanderthal dna therefore (laughs) you're, you're you're a bad guy i don't know it's it's very it's hilarious and also just it's shocking how far it's gone. But see, the anti-Asian stuff used to be much more simple. And it really seems like, it, it, you know, you can look at I, I think that they try and frame it in this broader context, which is very stupid. They frame it in the context of, first of all, the Japanese internment camps or, you know, the boxer rebellion in China that America, you know, took part in or uh, You you know, they'll frame it in terms of... Well, they're looking
1: for their Holocaust.
2: They're looking for their Holocaust, but they're looking to build a narrative where there isn't one in order to avoid what I think is the real narrative. They'll focus on America's, you know, uh, kind of latent half-assed imperialism in um, Polynesian island chains, in the Philippines, and and so forth. Um, There have even been one or two... um, I think very prescient individuals who uh, have foreseen that it's very likely at this stage that uh, the Japanese empire and um, Tojo will be sort of rebranded as the unsung heroes of World War II, the non-white competitors to the, you know, the white struggles around the world. And I think that that's actually um, somewhat likely at this point, but now you have a, a situation where they're trying to kind of tie together these very disparate set of events into this broad history of anti-Asian hatred in America. You know, the hatred of the the Chinese railroad workers that supposedly was rampant. Although any account of that of the nineteenth century, I don't really have not found much that would indicate that anyone cared about these people. The general consensus at the time was. They're here to work. They're not here to stay. Although some of them ended up staying, you know why? Why do we care? Kind of what they want, but I think that the real narrative. Well, it's another are, case of
1: capitalist Yeah, using I, yeah.
2: But I think that the real staffs, narrative, the I mean, real narrative here that that, been here that that ties into you know, I think what's really <laughs> starting to go on in the eighties and nineties was I think when the competent nepotism was uh, primarily by you know the sort of the, the most important of the East Asians, the Chinese, the Koreans, the Taiwanese and the Japanese, uh, and their presence in America, they, they were able to direct that nepotism towards a few things. Number one, commercial real estate, um, number two, uh, local credit unions and banking uh, and financial services, uh, and number three, uh, the garment industry, um, fashion industry, small electronics industry, and so forth. I and mean, even some of that was still manufactured in the United States. And this was mostly on the West Coast at the time. And they were regarded by um, the previous urban dwellers uh, who on the West Coast were, you know, sort of lump and pearl whites or blacks, especially in California. Uh, Hispanics, especially in California, who saw them as um, taking what was rightfully theirs and coming in with money and connections and um, sort of all these family ties to the mainland and, and sweetheart deals and good credit and taking what they thought was theirs. And I think that in the 80s and 90s, especially in the late 80s and early 90s, The elites of the United States probably saw it as a good thing. Well, you know, we can finally take this commercial real estate and we can reinvigorate it, right? And we can can get these people to inject the capital, take the risk that we don't want to take. They can do the heavy lifting. They can do the legwork. And they can start to rebuild small retail commercial cores in these urban areas. And we can then sort of piggyback off of that in 10, 15, 20 years. Um, and I think that they did, and that's really when the gentrification trend, as it's known, really starts to take off. Late 90s, early 2000s, and especially post-financial uh, crisis is when gentrification becomes the big topic because that's when the majority of the money is flowing into it. That, especially on the West Coast, and in some East Coast cities, and in you know a few places in the Midwest, that that process could not have been completed, I think, uh, as easily without the kind of Asian nepotism towards commercial real estate revitalization. Now it's around this time when Asians in America really, I think, start to face the brunt of some an actual systemic racism. And this, and if we're going to talk about systemic racism, I will. I will go to bat for them, and I will say that they did face plenty of systemic racism.
0: Well, can I give some they, numbers on that?
2: Well, sure. Let me, let me finish. They, they, they faced it from primarily, primarily blacks, and they faced it in such stark numbers that it eventually exploded into real gunfights in multiple American cities for days at a time sustained urban warfare that is the i think the beginning of a real narrative that they don't want to talk about for this stop asian hate bullshit and what's really going on is that for whatever reason the blacks in america and it's really just the blacks in america and i think we have all these other sort of strange newcomers in this country too now um are taking out their aggression and their angst, uh, and I think that they're to- their total failure, I mean, these people are broadly failures, especially now, uh, against um, many of these same, you know, J- Jim Quan, the laundromat owner types, you know, sort of um, this aspirational middle-class commercial real estate guys. That is what this is really about. And it just so happens that All of a sudden, out of nowhere, when we're starting to really talk about, okay, who's doing this Asian hate? Like, what is this really? When you really look at it, where did this start? Who's doing it? We get a mass shooter event. And, of course, it's some, like, caricature of a dumb, like, southern hick. It's like a cartoon character with the weird beard and the, you know, the goofy sunken eyes and the the hat. It's like...
1: It's twofold. There's two forms of it. Well, you have on the low end, on the street level, in the urban areas, you have the uh, abuse of the Asian by the Negroes. And then on the high end, the, the Asians who are trying to move into the upper echelons of what was once something resembling American society. Uh, you have them being shut out by the Jews and, and the Ivy Leagues. So okay, you know, all right. Sort of touched Le- on here.
0: Le- let me, this is what I want to talk about. So in 2017, speaking of Ron Unce, he put out an article, which I think was when this lawsuit was working its way through the courts at uh, Harvard about uh, discrimination against Asians. And so this article is is pretty well cited and known at this point. Uh, it's about four years old at this point. I will link to it, but it's worth reviewing because it shows in pretty clear math and graphs showing that the proportion of Asians that are represented in all, I I would argue, objective standards of academic scholastic achievement have grown substantially over the past 30 years, and as has their population. Uh, However, their enrollment at the elite colleges in the East Coast has not changed at all. And if you compare the Overrepresentation of the Jews, who have also, by the way, dropped in their proportion of a- academic achievement as a proportion of the total in the country. You know, back in the '40s, when you had Oppenheimer and Einstein running around, uh, there there could be the case to be made that the Jews were incredibly talented people, and they still are. But the and Jews talk about this openly. Their their capabilities have diminished, whether it's because they've uh, outmarried or they've gotten lazy, I don't know, or just too successful. But their achievements have gone down, yet their enrollments at the elite institutions have stayed the same, if not gone up. And their overrepresentation in places like Harvard uh, is a thousand times greater than what their achievements would represent. And this is coming from Ron Unz, uh, in his very uh, thorough and rigorous way of writing. And so one can sort of craft a theory as to maybe what's going on here. Now, this is just my theory, and we're all sort of reacting as things happen because we, of course, (laughs) have very little power to control what actually happens. We're just, and we're not in the know, uh, but we're sort of putting the pieces together based on lots of patterns that have happened throughout this country over the past probably 100 years. And what I'm guessing is that this, like, Asian hate thing and trying to pin it on white people, as opposed to uh, maybe what the Asians were really complaining about, which which was what the Jews were doing at these institutions, might be a way to, again, recruit the Asians, just like they've recruited the Negroes into their little coalition to uh, attack the, the great threat that they still perceive as being good old uh, European people. Um, Correctly
2: so. so. I think that there's there's a there's an obvious and very strange tension strategy at play here. I think that the idea is to, number one, um, create some kind of strange wedge between asians in the united states who are beginning to amalgamate more wealth and more influence you know the the positions of government ngos economic institutions uh corporations you you name it educational bodies and to build a wedge between them and 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 whites i think in the united states To prevent any sort of real common cause and common understanding over trying to maintain a level of maybe order or at least stability in the country because you can see the logic starting to play out on the one hand they're pushing asians a specific kind of asian away by saying you are no longer allowed in the poc category you know you are no longer allowed to say that you are disadvantaged, you're not allowed to, but we don't want you partnering with whites. And I think the tension strategy, this push-pull, I don't know how effective it's going to be, but I think that the idea is to effectively allow on some level few things to happen. Number one, to get Asians used to the idea that they are just one member of a quota system, and thus it is okay for for their educational uh, ground to be limited. Number two, it's to, I think in some part, uh, force them to start abandoning their commercial real estate holdings, their holdings in urban areas, Um, for a couple of reasons. Number one, the idea seems to be uh, attempting to reward Blacks and Hispanics with a bigger piece of the pie, some kind of equity approach. And if you uh, bully and intimidate enough of these people, enough of the time, and you cover it up and you don't address it, they will give up. They will give up pieces of it. And I think that's the idea is to drive down the value of that real estate so you can more easily grant it to, you know, the even lesser hominids in America and pretend like you've given them some bigger piece of the pie. So I assume that this strategy against Asians is meant to fulfill multiple objectives. Um, And I think in large part, there is an element here that you touched on, that Ron Unz touched on and... That Nick has touched on, and that you will never see in any sort of mainstream analysis of, especially the the higher level pushback against Asians, is that you know quite frankly there is uh, a, there is a liberal there's a strange liberal white elite, and a very uh, uh, anachronistic and corrupt Jewish elite in this country, and. Both of them have, I think, zero interest in being outsmarted and outmatched, and certainly not through just sheer volume of people. And so that, I think, is, is, a, is a huge part of it, of what's going on. And I think in some way, by forcing Asians to focus on this you know, strange identity crap, they are, I think, hoping we can distract them enough. They won't, they won't be as academically minded they won't be as driven you know they won't spend 20 hours in the library they you know not caring what other people think about them they will be easier to dumb down and manipulate and to control and so i assume that all of this stuff builds up to this nonsensical out of the blue stop asian hate campaign and there's, a, there's an additional element here that I think uh, the United States is, is either not prepared for or is knowing the elites of this country are knowingly allowing to happen. Um, it's no secret that this country is you know on the precipice of a pretty major war or at least protracted conflict with a uh, semi-powerful Asian country. You might have heard of it. It's called China. There is something that I don't think these people are counting on, and that is what happens when this stop Asian hate pill-pull strategy gets turned against them? Because how difficult would it really be at this stage for the Chinese to come out, the Chinese government, and say, there is an excessive level of violence directed towards Asians in America, and we need to support them. Well, congratulations, you've just built yourself a fifth column.
0: It's what Hitler Hitler claimed
2: when he invaded Poland. Aligned against you, yeah. it's, it's, It's very, very, very precarious, and I think that... They're playing very fast and loose and hoping that they can distract long enough to prevent that from happening. Um, I think that in, in some part, that's what this Uyghur campaign, which is also just totally bizarre and out of the blue, um, is about. And I've said this before, the Uyghur stuff is particularly strange. I think it's – I'm not a shill for China. Trying to see it from their perspective, it's probably totally baffling. Because, uh, as I've said before, the, the Uyghur-Han dispute is a roughly eleven to 1,200-year-old dispute. This is a blood feud older than the Battle of Hastings. These people hate each other. They've been trying to kill each other for a very long time. And they've been competing over that stretch of, um, of the basin in the area of the Taklamakan Desert. <laughs> All of it. They've been, they've been competing over the resources there, competing over the land there, and this goes back to when they were competing over who had access to the Silk Road trade routes. And so the, 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 the approach here is to both say, well, there's this, there's this groundswell of Asian hate coming from, we're not going to say who it's coming from, but of course they're going to hint that it's like this amorphous white man threat. And by the way, we have to stop the Chinese from hating the Uyghurs. It's a very, very strange strategy. And so, of course, we nope. come to we we come to the the mass shooting event, and if, and immediately, first of all, this is a Korean massage establishment. So, the this
1: perhaps...
2: They're the, the trying to tie it into well, you know, the the former president because he said uh, "Kong flu" or he, he he called it the China virus. That, of course, inspired a man to go shoot up a Korean massage parlor. Very yeah. very strange.
1: Yeah. There. Okay. I I have a few points on this. I'll, I'll prep. I I two. I even actually. I even wrote a a note here when Hans was talking. And I'm going to preface it by saying my my position is that we only really have two enemies. We have in this order, actually, we have the white trader, be it uh, the white liberal, capitalist, whatever you want to call them. We have the white trader and we have the Jew. Everyone else is varying degrees of potential competitors and environmental hazards, as is the case of the Negro. Uh, there's the only thing stopping us from dealing with those competitors is the above too many mentioned enemies. Now, what they're having to deal with, the enemy that is, is a situation where American cities are becoming less and less white. And they've tooled up their entire infrastructure that they've built up over the past, you know, whatever, 80 years they're trying to deal with a new problem and that problem is that the same kind of phenomenon is always taking place here when you're when you're dealing with especially especially the negro uh you have episodes of violence but it becomes more cartoonish to blame whitey and it's not to say that they won't be able to adapt to this and it's not to say they won't be able to or they won't blame whitey. But there is a consequence to that. Namely, that will, will, in fact, lead to the radicalization of more white people because it's just going to become more and more transparent when, you know, uh, uh, Mubugu goes and, like, you know, murders, like, an elderly Asian, elderly Chinese women at the laundromat or whatever because he had an episode, you know. This this is the kind of thing, and they're, go- they're going to keep doing what they've always done, but it, it's... This whole narrative is, is becoming, it's becoming an issue for them because I think people are, despite, you know, TV watchers and what that's done to their brain, it, it is a little bit it, they're going to reach an issue with that. Uh, well, second, I, this is a problem I have with cer- certain. Let me, I'll make my second point. Go ahead, but basically, there's a certain type of uh, racialist and or paleoconservative that likes to talk a lot about IQ. And I've always objected to this. I view it as a slippery slope to phylo-Semitism because first they start by saying they're basically anti-Negro people. And I'm not an anti-Negro person. I just call them Negro for what he is. I mean, it's just like everyone knows it. One of my first rules in dealing with this kind of stuff is is Negroes don't actually matter. Uh, People, I mean, everyone likes Negro jokes or whatever. It's kind of funny, but... I mean, they are what they are, man. It's not like you need a, a bell curve to understand this. Just, just go deal with them. I mean, it, shit. I mean, before, it's kind of like, what do what they call it? Psychometric shit. I mean, everything that ever needed to be said or written about the Negro was written by 19th century Southerners. Like, done. End of case. Like, nothing more needs to be said. These people had more experience dealing with them than anyone else did. And they said it all. You know, there's no new advancements in trying to understand the Negro. I largely view IQ fetishism as big. And it starts with like, oh, well, northern Asians are smart, smart. And uh, smart, smart is good. Smart, smart is the basis of civilization. Uh, Not true. Uh, And therefore, you know, Jews are cool, too. Look at how high their IQs are. Uh, We should be really worried about the Negro threat. Uh, No patience for that bullshit. Anyways, moving on. the, the issue actually to Hans's point is that the these people do have a state behind them. I mean they don't the idea of like an alliance or cooperation with Asians is kind of cartoonish because they have their own countries. In fact, their countries are run despite all their problems far better than the American economic zone. So until they're dealing with the same situation much better dealing with in their own countries. Then I don't see the idea of a, a cooperation or alliance with these people as being any is being anything but detrimental. Considering they could easily become, and I'm not I'm not going to do the mud China either. But fact is, there's powerful states that are able to support them, and they are natural fifth column. And the same reason that the Jews are afraid of them, the same reason that the Jews want to shut them out of Ivy League institutions, is a similar reason that we shouldn't really be dealing with them uh, on a political level. Uh, I, I agree with all that uh, I don't really have any more points uh, you can finish Hans and then I'm, I'm happy to, to talk about Star Trek Well yeah
2: I think <laughs> well yeah so, God. so so what's interesting is we come to this this first mass shooting right and by the way, are we all just going to ignore like the very obvious um, sex trafficking <laughs> angle to this? like we're we're just ignoring that, right? No one wants to talk about that. See that was that was the other interesting aspect of this all. It's first of all, you know they're they're saying, well, the president inspired him to go shoot up the the Korean massage sex parlor. Um, by making fun of China for uh, a virus. That's the cultural narrative. Think of that what you will. And then, you know, Americans are then uh, expected to not want to look into, well, why does this young man claim to have a sex addiction, and this is the first place he goes to go take out his anger? Anyone want to draw a, a, a linear plane between those two points? a little bit of simple geometry. Something very strange is definitely happening at these institutions. And it's something that I think is is talked about in a foreign sense by the U.S. State Department. You know, I was curious, the U.S. State Department puts out this report called the Trafficking in Persons Report every year. And they've been putting it out for a few decades now. And it's really something that they've been doing since the end of the Cold War and sort of the fait accompli of the U.S. State Department. They could really dictate the global narrative on any issue. And there's something very peculiar about these reports. Um, the discussion of human trafficking is extensive. It's data driven. It's interesting. It you know describes human trafficking as a multi-billion-dollar global criminal enterprise. But what's not talked about is how does this tie into the United States? You see the the flow of people. Well, into the United America. States is the world capital of criminality. Right. Well, see, so here's my point. We're not. We're going to have this amorphous discussion around stopping Asian hate, but then we're not going to talk about the very obvious, real problem here or one of the real problems here, which is that there is a massive sex trafficking operation coming from Asia into this country. And apparently, all you need to do is go down to your local Korean massage parlor to experience a piece of that. See, this is, I think, the ultimate strange element to this entire story is that we're going to ignore the real violence against Asians in this country and how this all really got started. We're going to craft a fake narrative that apparently reaches back into the 19th century with supposed discrimination against Asians. And we're not going to talk about the human trafficking flows from Asia into the United States. And then we follow up the next week with an even more bizarre incident. Um, This happened recently, so uh, the details on it are still a little fuzzy. But when I was mentioning earlier the PSYOPs have come back. Um, Not only did they construct a PSYOP to try and hammer home a cultural point, they've constructed yet another PSYOP to resurrect an old one that we haven't seen in a while. And uh, can you guess what that is? Can you guys guess?
0: Uh, Smokey the
1: Bear? Uh, 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 video games as violent. No,
2: you're close. Radical Islamic terrorism.
0: Oh, wow. Well, we gotta, we gotta, Indian we gotta war. finish off uh, the last country in the Middle East called Iran. So I'm not so surprised. Exactly. Here's, here's
2: <laughs> very peculiar. Do you want to know who exactly they're saying inspired this person to do what
1: he did? I didn't even know what happened. I uh, a white, I a it white supremacist. For the first time, I did yeah. hear about the. Yeah, is, is it a, a white convert to? Uh, Shia Islam. It's not uh, a no, no, no no no, 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 no,
2: no. It's even. It's even more sciopy than you could think. Four letters. I S I S is back. ISIS is back. After four years of basically becoming literal who's no one ever thought of anymore, um, they've returned. Just like that. Wow, really weird. They've returned, so is radical Islamic terrorism on American soil. It just reappeared. So, so odd. Can you guess where this young man is from?
1: I know uh, Kenya.
2: The Levant?
1: Somalia. He's from,
2: he is from Syria. So we come full circle. So there was something that a lot of us in this scene noticed around the time that um, the Trump campaign began and the uh, when Trump won the presidency. Something very strange was going on. Prior to that, there was the massive. There was the, the massive sh- inflows. Shooting of- was actually an Arab. It was an Arab ISIS-inspired
1: Syrian immigrant. Uh. In in Colorado, is that right? Yeah, in Colorado. Is that what you said? Colorado. Yeah. yeah. Where, where in Colorado? Do you know, Boulder. In. <laughs> <laughs>
2: oh
1: man, this is why I don't watch TV. So here, for Star Trek. here's here's um, something
2: very odd going on. We own this scene noticed a couple things in the like 2015, early 2016 era. Number one, you had a massive inflow of peoples into Europe, um, peoples into Turkey, peoples into even North America, um, mostly from the
1: Islamic world. And so, you- uh, which uh, Jewish and geo imported him into boulder well hold on we'll get there we will get there. into boulder colorado do we have the i don't think we
2: know i don't think we know yet but we'll get there so around that time there was suddenly this massive spike in islamic terror attacks and a lot of them were there were so many at one point there was such a high volume that some of them were only making local news and they were um Much smaller, you know, as a knifing or a stabbing or a shooting or, you know, little things here and there. Then you have the big shootouts, the big bombings, the big knife attacks, the public decapitations, the acid attacks, killing people in churches. I mean, it just kind of kept ramping up and ramping up and ramping up. The death toll kept getting higher and higher and higher. You know, you start with 10, then you go to 100, then you go to a couple hundred and, then you have massive attacks across Paris, and you have you know bombings in, in Boston, and you have it's just insanity. And then it all kind of stops. It just stops out of the blue. And it was because suddenly there was this very widespread public anger, I think, in Europe, in North America. And a general public distrust of the leaders of these countries, including America, as to what exactly is happening. The Islamic world is emptying out into our countries, and we're seeing violence on a scale we haven't seen in a long time. Some countries were on the brink of small-scale civil wars over this. And it all just kind of comes to a close. And this discussion of ISIS becomes very hush-hush. Oh, you know, it's it's really bad. And all of a sudden, the global military campaign, out of the blue, gets created to go wipe out the caliphate. And this pressure campaign...
1: Oh, it's just a, a question of how do you report on things that would be happening anyways? I mean... If Notre Dame had burned in 2007, it would have been an Islamic terrorist attack. You know, it's just. <laughs> yeah, exa- exactly. So what do we, what, which do we need to dig up today? As far exactly. As, yeah. And you know, I, what, I think that that's, that's part of
2: what I'm getting at is that all of a sudden, you know, we have this horrible civil war in Syria and we have this global call to understand the refugee crisis and to come to an understanding with Islam. And a lot of people around the world expressed you know, total disinterest in, in, in any of that. And they had to kind of wrap it up real quick. Okay, you know what? we got to turn off the spigot on the Islamic terror stuff. People are getting really pissed off. we got to turn off the, uh, the flow of money and arms into these ISIS guys. They're, they're not getting the job done. They're not throwing Bashar out, and uh, they're just getting crazy we got to turn all that off. And they turned it all off because it was suddenly, you know, inflaming people and people were angry. People were looking
1: and to they, people. They turned off the reporting on They didn't turn off the spigot of Arabs flooding into white countries. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, this is, this is my, this is part, this is why I don't follow the news, man. I mean, it's like, we, we know what the score is. And it really, as far as I see it personally, it does me no good to try to figure out what what the next move of these people is, how what the game is going to be in the next month, because you know from a from a larger time perspective, none of this changes anything. The it, the game is still the same. It's us against them. Well, yeah, and but I think we're not going to be able to the head off any of the media narratives. It doesn't work like we 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 does us really little no good. I mean, every now and then, I'm kind of curious to tune in. I'm happy to have you you tell me this, but I just, it's like, oh, how many days without Jewish tricks? like, oh, okay, we're doing this again. Reboot, rerun over and over and over again until these fuckers are dragged out of their offices.
2: Yeah, and and so I I see it as, well, um, they realize they went too far with... Whatever the intended goal was in that sort of strange period between, you know, starting 2013-ish, 2016, they had to turn it off. They had to stop covering it. They had to wrap it up. They had to go whack all these guys in Syria, and they had to clean up the mess. And they had to make the refugee flows much more quiet. They had to try and tamp down on Islam as much as they could. And suddenly, well, we had a brief reprieve from that. And people aren't expecting it anymore. And so, for whatever reason, this whole narrative of ISIS, this whole narrative of radical Islamic terrorism, the war on terror, is back. For no reason at all. You know, 20 years after 9 11, effectively, it's back just when everyone kind of thought, okay, we've sort well, of wrapped this up. So I think ultimately what's happening is that we're resurrecting this narrative of the war on terror, Syria, ISIS. Because clearly <laughs> we, we, you know, we ha- need to go wrap up whatever is still going on in Syria. There was something very odd that happened the other day. Not a lot of people talked about it, but there was a, a, a high volume of um, Russian bombing activity in Syria in the two days prior to this event. And suddenly you have a Syrian immigrant inspired by ISIS who shoots up a uh, shopping center in Boulder, Colorado. So there's some kind of wider geopolitical game going on here. And for whatever reason, the elites of the United States, the media apparatus, feel as though they need to resurrect something that many Americans are now very used to. I think uh, is the war on terror narrative, and to at least get people acclimated to this war on terror narrative. If they were too young to remember the original version of this from the W years, and so I think that that's ultimately you know these these two recent strange psyops are part of some larger set of games to get people into some new very odd mode of thinking one of which is you know supporting foreign adventurism and one of which is one of which is supporting some kind of internal nationwide struggle session it's very very strange time in the news but on any level apparently we need to talk about star trek and uh, we were requested to talk about it And I think Adam had a surprise. Did you have a surprise, Adam, for Star Trek?
0: Well, I have a surprise, but let me first state uh, on the topic of Star Trek. It means many things to many people, but I don't think it means the same thing to everybody. Um, For me, it has particular meaning, I'm sure, for Nick and for anybody else who've watched it. It has meaning. Uh, But I think related to what we've been talking about, I think the biggest parallel Star Trek shares with the American empire is the notion that a disparate group of people, AKA the Federation, AKA the American empire are going to transcend all of the past evidence demonstrating that disparate groups don't really coalesce that well, but in the future they will somehow, it's sort of like that uh, underpants gnomes meme about, uh, you know, first, uh, do this question mark and then total victory. Um, it's never really explained how this wonderful rainbow coalition of nations and planets, uh, formed the United Federation of planets in the Star Trek universe, but it happens. Um, and they somehow like explained it away with like, well, there was a devastating war and then they all decided that that was never a good idea again. And so we're going to come together because the Vulcans visited and, we recognize that we have more in common uh, with each other than we do with these aliens. And so it, it was something, something like that. Um, but, um, that's, I think the, the sociological aspect, but the, the other aspect that I thought was kind of fascinating about Star Trek was the technological. And I have in front of me, I've mentioned this once before, but I, I have in front of me from my childhood, the Star Trek, the next generation technical manual, um, and I'm going to randomly flip to a page and read to you how, uh, how crazy this can get in terms of just a young child's imagination running wild with the possibilities of uh, not all this uh, critical theory nonsense, but what actually you could might accomplish if you used your, your higher order brain. So on page 70, uh, it explains the, I will keep this short, do not worry. I just want to kind of make some people laugh here. Um, I was reading this when I was probably 10, I don't know. And it's sort of pseudoscience I'll admit, but it's fun stuff. So 5.6, the buzzard Ram scoop fuel replenishment system. Um, In the event of a deuterium tanker cannot reach a galaxy-class starship, the capability exists to pull low-grade matter from the interstellar medium through a series of specialized high-energy magnetic coils known collectively as a buzzard ram scoop. Um, I'll stop there. But the basic idea is you're traveling through space and you're going faster than light. Now, that's the first sort of they don't explain, uh, but they kind of attribute it to... uh, this guy named Zefram Cochrane who figured out how to do warp drive, but you're you're going through space, sort of going through it. It's not it's a sort of a nonlinear system though. You have to like fold it somehow to travel through these crazy uh, distances in a short amount of time, and the amount of energy required to to go that fast it's like an, on an exponential curve, and it reaches infinity once you theoretically reach warp ten. Uh, but in order to get that going, uh, you have to consume a lot a lot of matter. So you have this matter antimatter reaction chamber known as the warp drive. And so when matter and antimatter meet, they collide, they generate a huge amount of uh, energy. But what that was referring to was when you're going through space, there's a lot of dust, interstellar dust, uh, and the most common element in space is hydrogen. Uh, so the theory is that if you were able to, have this magnetic coil running you could grab all the fuel needs that you you need to consume with the exception of the antimatter and the dilithium crystals which go in the uh, warp engine but this stuff goes on i mean i only read like one one or two sentences but this this universe is very thorough and when we were talking to (laughs) ethnarch may he rest in wherever he is. I I think he's still around, but uh, we were talking to him in brief about science fiction and speculative fiction. And I sort of put forward without much evidence that Star Trek is actually a pretty well thought through uh, science fiction. And he kind of convinced me that it's not super, super advanced, but I mean, it is television. What do you expect? Uh, And he kind of called it sort of a middle brow, Uh, sci-fi genre, which I suppose I agree with if you are a reader, but if you're a television watcher, I think it's, it's one of the more sophisticated ones out there. And I always kind of liked it because I'm somewhat of a gearhead and I enjoyed all the, the drawings and the special effects. And, And back then, back when I was watching it, the next generation, Special effects were great because they were practical effects. They actually would build the miniatures like they did in, in Star Wars. And there's a famous picture of George Lucas. I know it's not Star Trek, but still, he kind of inspired this this genre to continue, even though Star Trek preceded his uh, Star Wars movie. But there's a famous picture of George Lucas standing at Industrial Light and Magic, which, by the way, also was responsible for a lot of the special effects in Star Trek. Uh, the next generation and he's standing in this big room after i think return of the jedi came out the third one and it's just got all like the entire it's like a warehouse there's an entire room filled with him standing in the middle of it but sort of half half his size there's like a a big uh, at at walker there's a, a, a little uh uh, or a big uh, star star destroyer. I actually know a little bit less about Star Wars than Star Trek, so I'm I'm kind of mixing up names in my head. But the point is, there was a, an incredible amount of artistry that went into this stuff, and there are there are images of um, photographs of people painting the backgrounds by hand. And and now just smash cut to today, and and where the the series has gone and degraded to. You could also argue it's mainly cultural and and. Uh, lack of talent, frankly, that has been involved in it, uh, but also just the the quality of the the effects and just the effects are part of the drama. Uh, it really makes you suspend disbelief and feel like you're in, in a, a serious situation. I think the music has also taken a turn for the worse. I remember comparing when uh, Star Trek Voyager was sort of circling the drain, and I was still watching it because back then there wasn't really much much to do on the Internet. You kind of had television, and that was about it. Um, so I was watching it because I was sort of loyal, but I I, I started hating the, the series at that point. Uh, DS9 was pretty good, but um, I remember the music mu- musical scoring was just awful. Like, they, they couldn't set the tone. They, they didn't get the lighting right. And a lot of these things are, are very... You would maybe think are not important, but they set the mood. And whatever it was about The Next Generation, by season three, I should add, they had gathered enough steam and momentum and talent to really make these unbelievably dramatic episodes that not only were uh, written well with compelling storylines about Torture and uh, loyalty and all these really complex important topics in my opinion uh, and they coupled that with incredible special effects and also just general drama making that was enhanced greatly by the way they would incorporate all of these elements to make you feel like you were in a very important critical situation like the lighting, like the music the, the, the certain tones of the the, uh, the music would, would cue you to, to feel a certain way. Uh, it's a a little bit akin to a laugh track, but you would never do that for something like this, but it's the same idea is that you would prompt and subliminally message to people how things are. And the quality of that really was never surpassed in my opinion. DS9 was good. It had a different storyline and and setting because it was more about diplomacy and a, a larger scale conflict. Uh, but just the, the heroism and the sort of camaraderie that developed around that, that classic model of having a ship in a bottle and you are drifting through space and you're in a crisis situation, every episode, uh, that's just a great formula. Uh, and I think next generation perfected it. So anyway, on to the next Trekkie on this show.
1: Yeah. Um, uh unfortunately i have a lot to say about star trek and you know (laughs) adam and i are very very different personality types and i can say i I, so i don't like nerd shit and i also don't like for lack of a better term like dork shit like like wizards and stuff like that you know i don't like i I, like none of the techno babble interests me and i do like some fantasy insofar as it's a good story and the same is true as science fiction i neither appeals to me on a genre level though i have watched a lot of science fiction right re- i've read a lot of science fiction fantasy as well uh and the reason being is that what i appreciate about both of those genres is that they allow for storytelling to exist independent of any kind of uh historical context so you can you can tell stories they're 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 both much closer to the mythological in that they're not bound by considerations of context related to reality per se okay so that's what i like about science fiction fantasy generally star trek specifically so my unlike adam i didn't have like a nerd book My first experience with Star Trek was when I was a small child. I had, uh, and this is, again, this is why this is pretty niche content, because it's one of those things you probably were exposed to this as a youngster or you weren't. And uh, I certainly am not going to recommend anyone go watch Star Trek. Even if I say good things about it, I'll probably say a lot of negative things, too. But I can do my best to explain what I thought was interesting and also maybe make a few observations that are relevant if you're not into this shit. But anyways, when I was a small child, uh, I had a Star Trek communicator thing. It's that like triangle. They, they press it up, like beam me up. Right. So I had one of those as a toy and I was like running down the stairs and I stabbed myself in the forehead. uh, Pretty deep. Actually, I was just like bleeding everywhere. Uh, so that was my first encounter with Star Trek. I mean, I had seen the program or whatever, but I was just, you know, just a kid, but I was as a toy. I liked, and I managed to fuck myself up pretty badly with it. So, anyways, I agree with how next gen is the kind of the thing to talk about. I'll confine most of what I have to say to next gen because I think that that is Star Trek at its best. And I guess I can say like, why would you like this show? Because in a, in a lot of ways, it epitomizes everything that is wrong. I mean, it is it is the The setting is the quintessential liberal wet dream where the last man has ascended to some kind of galactic imperium that is, by the way, in total denial that it's an empire or that it's even a militarized force. Uh, There's a lot of strange contradictions in Star Trek. But what I can say is a very base level. The thing I liked about it is it was very tight, atmospheric, storytelling like they did a good job and it was episodic which i appreciate i i can't stand long arc television series even the good ones i never finished like i've never finished the sopranos i never finished deadwood uh i never finished rome like i you i can only if it's a like a long arc tv thing i can only watch it if it like is one season long usually <laughs> i'm pretty bad at that I, I prefer film for that reason i don't i don't like having to invest that much of my time and energy into extended melodramas, even ones that are well done. So Star Trek, even to this day, is something I do go back and I'll watch every now and then. I'll watch an episode here or there. Uh, I have the ones I like. And I have, I have, again, unfortunately, a few things to say about it. And I'll try not to get into the minutiae. But I think for our purposes, what's interesting is that it's a very... It's a very naive. It's a reflection of how the liberal sees itself. But as the stories play out, because of the writing and because it's written by different people, what you end up seeing is a lot of these ideas end up in conflict with themselves. Uh, a famous episode of Star Trek is the, "Who Watches the Watchers," where they're because one of the main things is that they're not Prime supposed directive. to intervene in the development of other civilizations. Yeah, the Prime Directive. And that's interesting because what their criteria is for joining the Federation is that you essentially have to be a, you have to accept like there is no God. Like the first premise is like almost pseudo like militant, even though they always deny militancy, but it's like hardline materialistic atheism. And that's the only truly ascended culture is a raceless sexless atheistic uh last man of history mm-hmm. who has nothing to struggle for nothing to go beyond has no real meaning no sense of historical value whose only real purpose is to like subsist because life in of itself like organic matter is, is somehow valuable there's another one i remember i think adam and i've even joked about this when we were hanging out before but. what's the one with like the crystalline there's okay oh the crystalline entity yeah 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 Yeah, it's the same thing you know it it fucking eats worlds it eats entire fucking worlds like, that's what it does. Yeah, and Picard like tries to nature. defend it
0: because and they're like, it's, it's a sperm whale. Okay. You know, it's a like, sperm like, whale on Earth eats and, millions of cuttlefish. Yeah, it, right it is not evil. Lie. It is just eating. <laughs> and she's like, yeah. fuck you, I lost my it, son. <laughs> I'm gonna kill it.
1: The the entire ethos of it is it, it's I mean, what more can you say? It's, it's like it is libtard to the core. But it's a kind of like more naive libtardism and to Adam's point earlier about like how did these this people ever get to exist? It doesn't make any sense. Like the the more virile uh, people would have eradicated the Federation. Like for example, the Romulans. There's no reason the Romulan Empire wouldn't have been able to completely crush the Federation.
0: Well, they have the uh, neutral the Federation zone. Federation
1: is weak willed, and yeah, and I, th-
0: I think they use uh, the Klingons um, as their allies to defend against so
1: them. what here's my most here's my most like uh i'm putting on the hat take about star trek is i, I think what's interesting is the Borg. i don't want to get too pretentious yes. with this but i'm gonna i'm yes. gonna say this yes i i, I view the Borg as this kind of like young shadow of the federation because mm, their, their nature is actually the exact same.
0: Yes, they it is. Exactly. To
1: assi- assimilate it's the final form. <laughs> uh, the Federation. Yeah, exactly. They both are the... the, the yeah, the, there is no going further. All All there is to do is to gather into themselves. And Star Trek has this weird... It appeals to things that are healthy instincts like the the desire for frontiers for exploration yeah
0: heroism but it's actually courage it's
1: ironically about closing the frontiers yes because their sense of exploration is is to bring everything into themselves and the borg are the same way but the borg are more honest about it and they just they say, you know, we will destroy well, you What's, what's interesting and-
0: about that is, I think, the, a lot of interesting things about that, but I think the Borg, I agree, are more honest about it, but they're in a position to be more honest about it. And it's sort of, again, it's, it's, it's sort of an overdone analogy perhaps, but it's very akin to how America, the empire works. It sort of lulls you into this false sense of uh, playfulness while it, Bombs your cousin's wedding. uh, And then meanwhile, you want to immigrate to New York City to join that life that you saw on Netflix because that is just how they attract you into the fold. But if they were more honest about it, they would just they would just plow you under. But I don't think America has that much power. I don't think the Federation has that much power. So they rely upon the propaganda. They rely upon the uh, the false messaging and the false uh, promises because it's part of their tool chest um, and you know in, in ds9 is good I, I think what's great about deep Space 9 is that it actually addresses some of these hypocrisies it it there's many episodes in it where well captain Cisco for one is is just completely not like uh, captain Picard but aside from that the fact that they're in a war and they have to make actual like life or death decisions and they can't just, you know, lean comfortably around on their luxury liner, you know, replicating stuff uh, for free and playing on the holodeck every episode or every other episode, they actually have to ration things. They have to kill people. They have to lie. Um, and I think at that point Ronald D. Moore was really making his mark and he ended up doing Battlestar Galactica. And I think that sort of real politics cynicism enters into that show much, much more than in Next Generation, where he was just sort of a staff writer. But well, it's I because
1: would because Gene Roddenberry was dead, that's that's what happened. Probably. They, they, but he died pretty early. Was, I think it was like season two uh, he died. He died, except it yes, it's true, but like they felt that they could con- they basically Deep Space Nine is where they they stopped following his rules. Uh that was one of them. And then the other two were the uh uh interpersonal conflict amongst the crew and uh uh sex, uh which that's probably the most unwatchable part of Deep Space Nine is like all the <laughs> grotesque like inner species like yeah, relationships. I, I agree. That was pretty uh, cringe. My favorite non uh, next generation content is actually Voyager. When uh, Jerry Ryan comes on, <laughs> well, uh, she was put there for the board thing.
0: Exactly. That effect. That's funny though.
1: No, I mean, yeah, she's, she's obviously, yeah. I mean, there's DNA. a few obvious things you could say about Jerry Ryan, but, but beyond that, uh, she, she provides. As far as that, like challenging the ethos of of the Libtard at the heart of uh, Federation, being a being former Bork, uh, she cuts right to the heart of it because she's able to actually like put these out as arguments as to like, well, why don't you just? It's in a sense Jerry Ryan is kind of like, um, uh, like sort of like Eastern Bloc meets meets the West, like yeah. It,
0: Good analogy. This is
1: how it's like oh well we would have just executed them like right. obviously like what, what, why are you cause like you know that I enjoyed that the most I mean Voyager yeah again I'm not really recommending any of this to anyone who hasn't already seen it and I, I would assume people who don't care about Star Trek have already tuned out but I would uh, recommend season
0: 3 through 7 of the next generation in
1: Okay, yeah. If you insist on watching it, yeah, I, totally. Uh, well, yeah, two has it's some, good. One is is trash. Uh, two Obs- has some yeah, okay, series sucks. Yeah, actually yeah. has some really good ones, but overall it's not very good. But yeah, three, three through like five is the golden age.
0: They were generation. they were slowing they just, down, but they, they had a few gems. Good, yeah, I
1: mean, it's just good. Yeah, storytelling situation, some clever shit. I mean, yeah, yeah. If you're like a sci-fi nerd and you're you're. Like, oh, this just doesn't make sense. Like, uh, I mean, man, I mean, get it deep into the weeds. Like, there are people who've like mapped out the uh, the enterprise, and like, this doesn't belong here, and so and so. I don't know, man. If you can't, if you're like watching like nerd shit and you can't suspend disbelief, I I really feel kind of sorry for you because you're you're basically fucked.
0: Yeah. Well, to your other question about yeah, you, why You have to find anything you
1: really enjoy, but yeah,
0: yeah that's true. I, uh, um, but I, I will say that
1: I'm not going to start
0: going into my favorite. I mean one one of my one of my. And I also don't really want to <laughs> do the
1: like who are the space Jews because basically, oh, basically they're all space Jews. They kind of are, yeah. I mean, at least most of the major races. That aren't either Cardassians or I mean, the, the
0: Ferengi species. were like, almost like laughably planets. stereotypical. They, 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 but
1: no, okay, so all will say about the Klingons, I will say this there is no reason to believe that these monkeys would have ever made it into space.
0: <laughs> I know. That was one big question I never could answer fully. It was like these people are emotional uh they they're pretty illogical as depicted in most of the episodes however if you go back to the original series they're not as idiotic in the next generation they they somehow thought it would make sense to portray them as buffoons yeah they were white (laughs) but uh yeah they they, they they cast black people in the next generation which is weird although i i was a big fan of uh uh, Worf's brother, played by Tony Todd, he was pretty cool. Um, I thought he was a legit Klingon in every way. But uh, to your earlier question about why um, why this appeals, despite all of our complaining and criticism of the ideology of the show, um, at least just I think it's pretty simple. I mean, it's just an interesting setting you're literally in a spaceship that can go anywhere you want and travel to planets that have never been discovered before. And so the writers can basically write in almost anything. And it's just a fascinating setting. And it also, it's a fascinating test of the human condition, not, not in sort of some, you know, like uh, humanist, like, gay, neoliberal sense, but just
1: there's truth to the scenario definitely offers a lot of questions. Well, right. And you do when material necessities are no longer.
0: Well, but the, the reality of the show was that was not the case. They, they would play with that maybe marginally like that's sort of a a life of ease and pleasure like what do you do all day like well i guess you just enrich yourself or try to expand your horizons but the reality was they were in very
1: there's no
0: money no no, no no but hold on hold on that's another topic but i think my point here is that every, just about every episode, there was a, re, a resource limitation. The resource was their survival or the the fact that they couldn't get out of this uh, asteroid belt or, or there was a political uh, conundrum or there was some espionage going on. There was always challenges is what I'm getting at. Um, and perhaps that's, that's kind of a lesson is that and I, I've actually sort of adopted that as sort of a worldview, frankly, is that, even though even in our modern days that we're, we're not really going hungry on a regular basis, despite what the stupid media will tell you. I mean, America is like the fattest country in the history of the world. Uh, it's pathetic. Uh, but the fact that we have so much in terms of surplus, we're still not happy and we're still striving to improve and, and change things. And I think that's, that speaks well to the human condition is that we're, um, i don't know faustian or something it's it's promethean whatever you want to call it it's it's an insatiability about humanity that i think is going to be true regardless of whether you have a replicator or not um and yeah. i don't know there's like various
1: like tangents to this but god yeah, i i think well i think that's exactly right adam i think that's the point is that it taps into things that are appealing to the Aryan spirit a longing for frontiers and to explore and to go beyond. But at the same time, it perverts it because
0: yeah,
1: what what they strive to do is to turn whatever it is they discover into the same sterile, raceless, sexless Borg that they are. They
0: do. And they poke fun at that occasionally. And even in the next generation, do you remember an episode where there was the, the rogue captain that, uh, like, uh, transporter chief O'Brien used to serve under, and he was attacking the Cardassians because the stupid federation was, uh, sitting on its bureaucratic ass, and he was, uh, he was taking his starship into his own hands and, yeah, and blowing these guys out of the water. Who
1: turned yeah. out not, not even to be that much of a villain. That was an, that was a strangely nuanced. That
0: was, uh, they kind of condemned know, right. him by Is the end the the same
1: of the One show, Who, but... like, uh, yeah, yeah.
0: What's your Is question? The
1: one who like hated Riker.
0: No, that was, uh, that was, uh, Ronnie Cox's character, uh, Captain Jellico, And, uh, I think chain of command. Oh yeah.
1: yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah that yeah, was, yeah, that yeah. was an excellent, yeah, yeah, excellent
0: yeah. two-parter by the way. That's, that's must watch if you're, uh, new to star Trek, but, um, that was an interesting one too, because it showed, and you know, I, I just sort of grew up and didn't really know the difference, but, i didn't watch the original series until much later but seeing a guy come in with a completely different style than picard who's like this sort of polite diplomat guy uh and run things differently was also very interesting to see how uh the crew reacted to him and i don't know if we should go into all the details of that particular b story because the a story was essentially picard was Prisoner on on uh, Cardassia or something, and he was being interrogated, and um, yeah. and so the the ship yeah. was left with this substitute captain who was put there by Starfleet Command to lead a mission that was effectively involving the Enterprise and Picard at the same time. So they had to put this guy in and he just clashes culturally with the crew because they're used to Picard who sort of like gives them like these general goals, but is very like lenient on enforcing, uh, deadlines and, uh, and stuff like that. And, and this guy is just a hard ass, complete hard ass. And he clashes with Riker who, I don't know. I I think Riker was a little bit out of line to be honest, but, um, there were, there were some points that Riker raised, which are good, which are general, commentary on management because picard he sort of inspires you to uh you know want to impress him uh because he's sort of an impressive leads by example guy and jellico ronnie cox's character who played him very well uh he's the guy who was um dick jones in robocop and uh uh, just played all these villains in the 90s and so he was sort of this doing this again in star trek he was also um the, uh, the villain in total recall. I'm trying to, I think his name is Cohagen, but it's,
1: it's, um, it's where he's like, I, I, I hate you, Riker, but you're the best. He's the best pilot. He's the best ever pilot. There's right. a good scene though, because
0: they basically lay out why yeah. their management yeah. styles like are completely different. Um, very good scene. Uh, and, uh, Riker, Riker makes some good points. Um, I, I actually didn't dislike Riker. I knew a lot of Riker haters out there though. um, people were kind of, like, making fun of him, like, getting fat later in the episodes or something, or he was just, like, this, like, constant uh, sex pervert or something, but I don't know. He he was just he, sort he was of...
1: A stand-in for uh, you know, William Shatner, basically. Kind of, and, kind instead of, Instead yeah. of making him captain. Or well, he, he was killing the boy. Yeah, yeah.
0: I, I think that's that's about right.
1: Yeah. I mean, go ahead. Uh, he really didn't have a lot to do most of the time.
0: He had a couple good episodes, though. I think he was it was pretty good at uh, one. Of, probably my favorite Riker episode was when he was uh, he thought he was going insane, and he was like playing this play that Beverly roped him into doing, and uh, he he starts like imagining like this like schism between. There were actually a lot of episodes like this with him for some reason. Maybe they like he played it well, but. Uh, he just kept schisming between reality and and his delusions, supposed delusions. And there's sort of a reveal at the end of the episode that makes it all clear what's going on. But it was fascinating to sort of try to navigate perception about what is real and what is not. And am I actually crazy or is the surroundings uh, lying to me? And so that's what I thought was great and in that sort of story. And, but he was really good in that. Uh, the, the actor, Jonathan Frakes.
1: Now, one of the criticisms about Star Trek that I've heard in, it's very valid. Uh, I think it's actually even cliche at this point is that the alien life forms that they encounter are very rarely actually alien. And I don't just mean <laughs> they call them humanoid. They're, they're all like four legged creatures with, uh, yeah, no, that's not even what I mean. It's that they're, not I mean you got it's a Yeah, similar, they still have like
0: similar like value like systems like oh I value territory I value yeah, money you know it's like the same kind of basic stuff and just
1: different yeah, languages and spaceships Yeah exactly. Uh there's a few that you get that are actually truly alien but uh they definitely don't My actually one of my favorites uh, I will say one of my favorite episodes is the uh, the Tin Man.
0: Yeah, Here I was is, thinking uh, of that. The, yeah, the, the ship. But but it's not it's a ship. ship it's being, it's actually it's a, it's a being, exactly. right? Yeah,
1: yeah, precisely. That's a good one. And then Q is great. Uh, I think we can all agree that Q is awesome. He
0: only episodes. had one episode per season. I mean, yeah, it, it's correct. sort of nice that like he was kind of a surprise, perhaps, but. Um, wonderful actor, probably grossly underutilized on that series. Well, Hans, you haven't said much. Yeah, but
1: what do you I think mean, about all this? It was used with restraint.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's rare these I days. Was
2: ne- I was never too big into Star Trek. Like, I watched a fair amount of T and G as a kid. That's all I really ever got into, and normally just when it was on, <laughs> it's like in the background. Um. Like Nick made a comment about the prime directive. As I've gotten older and I've learned to hate the liberal far more and more, um, there's something very off-putting about the whole conception of the prime directive. And, it comes from this, like it was really, it's a product of the show from what, like, the, like the, the 60s era, the original show is kind of when that idea is first formulated right, the Shatner show.
0: Yes, but wrong. it's it, it, yes, but it's much more strictly adhered to by the next generation because I think the Federation at that point had just become this bloated bureaucracy that was too successful. And the pressure to conform to the rules was much greater as opposed to back when uh, the salad days of Kirk. It was really kind of like the Federation was facing mortal threats on like a yearly basis. So I, I don't also, think they really cared keep, that much back then.
1: Keep in mind one point to make if we're gonna bring up funds gonna bring up the original series the next generation was a remake of a cold war era TV program uh, at the close of the Cold War at the close of at the fall of the Soviet Union that is, so that, a, that that is a a, some context to the background yeah well there's something very off-putting about the whole
2: prime directive like you have to so it, it it's like this Um. Almost like this American liberal uh, concept of uh, you know nobility and isolation, right? And it stems from this belief, I think, fundamentally. Well, you know, you shouldn't. Uh, you shouldn't. You should leave people alone if they uh, haven't reached this certain standard. Of what we deem to be acceptable behavior, right? And Nick was kind of touching on that. Like they have to become horribly materialistic. And, you know, there's these cultural stratifications that you have to reach beyond just some kind of technological uh, breakthrough. And the irony, of course, of all of this is that the Federation is, is basically. <laughs> Surveilling and monitoring and lording over, in theory, all of these sort of uh, strange, you know, unpossessed um, uh, lower peoples, lesser peoples, uh, who just are, are too stupid to figure out both rocket science and and retain faith in God. And the federal, the whole concept of the Prime Directive—it's actually very kind of odd. And it definitely stems from, I think, the people who were making Star Trek and some of their cultural values. Well,
0: it's kind of it's anti-colonial.
2: It's anti-colonial, but not. like There's something about it that's actually particularly creepy in that the Federation is effectively keeping tabs on all of these planets. I mean, that's what you're led to believe. Yeah. And Yeah, they are.
1: It, it's yeah. so fun. yeah. Watch, watch who watches the watchers. That's that's the quintessential episode regarding this because I, I'll briefly summarize. I don't know if you've seen it, Hans. Uh, they they literally they have a, a outpost on this planet of people who they think they're they're watching them, and it's like they think that they may soon be developing or whatever into you know ascending to last man status, and they're uh, they're outpost that they're they're watching it's it's cloaked or whatever and you know something goes tits up and uh, their presence is revealed so then they're treated as gods uh by the you know by the peasantry right because they have this you know displayed all this technology that appears to them as some kind of sorcery or whatever and the big dilemma of the episode is that It's like, well, we're trying the last thing we want, because they were on their way towards atheism. That was the whole thing. It's like they're on their way towards abandoning all superstitions. And what we've come in through our presence here, we've given them a new God. And uh, like Picard in particular is horrified at this idea. The actor that, that they have in that, though, and I mean, that, that guy's great. He's, he's yeah, a well, the, the of, whole, seen him a bunch
2: of stuff. The whole conception of it then is like, okay, we can't contact them, uh, but we are certainly going to spy on them, surveil them, mock them, uh, look you know, very closely to see what kind of value we can eventually extract from them. And then once they are atheistic enough, we can we can grant them the God of the Federation. I mean, like, the whole, from what I remember, I mean, it's really TNG that, that hammers a lot of this stuff home. Uh, if the Federation itself effectively becomes, like, God. I mean, it, it's almost like how the modern British worship the NHS. It, it's, it's a very, very strange type of... Uh, secular placating where you worship the structure you worship the the bureaucracy you worship the the nominal values that it stands for but there's a there's a cruel irony i remember from like some of the I don't remember the names of the episodes so that's all that's just out of the window right now but there were there were a few episodes where um Like, I remember Picard and Data, and maybe we're thinking of the same episode or a different one, where, like, Picard and Data are talking about uh, how do we solve the geological disturbances on this planet or whatever that they were, like, thinking of.
0: (laughs) There's about 10 episodes, like, where that plot
2: line is is used. (laughs) And, 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 And Data basically suggests, like, well, we can spend some time we can study out we can study what's going wrong and we can come up with a solution and picard is like uh violate the prime directive it's like no fuck these people (laughs) they're not atheistic enough yet like i i don't care about their geological disturbance and so (laughs) i I, I basically you you arrive at this point where it's like okay so the the supposed um, uh, liberal egalitarianism of the federation is is actually this strange like massive galactic MK Ultra program where <laughs> we induct you into the 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 collective. Uh, and you have, a, you have a false sense of autonomy. I mean, the only difference between the Federation and the Borg is that, the, from what I remember, at least the Borg doesn't try and convince you that you're doing this willingly. I mean, the Federation effectively shows up and bullies you and, and teases you until you join up and then controls you for the rest of your species' life as soon as you join. It's this, It's the whole thing is is actually like if you really dig into the the political like the the politics of Star Trek are always more interesting to me. If you dig into the politics of Star Trek, the, what the Federation is doing is uh, a, a very advanced and strange form of secular imperialism. But it's pernicious. Yes, in, yes. It's, so, it's, it's it's galactic so Homo. Yeah, it's so pernicious in that. Yeah. So. It, well, well, let me let me finish really quick. It's like, so you're you're talking about like that one episode yeah, yeah, where like yeah, they yeah. They, get, they get revealed as being on the planet, and it's like literally like when some stupid Mormon in the CIA gets outed in Guatemala and he's like, hello there, fellow, uh, you know, <laughs> fellow amigos. <como> esta? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, it's just like, it, it's literally that, like they're literally infiltrating and spying and looking to extract value and, 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 and then as soon as you join up like give give us all of your resources your resources belong to the common market now and
1: um well they don't really need resources
2: but uh, here's, yeah, here's your here's <laughs> your contract here's your social contract it's
1: after some material things so much they they want it's they want your soul uh, is is what they want i i remember i got it in, in an argument with a friend of mine. Uh, he he was—he's an old friend of mine, and he's—he's he's not really, not really one of us exactly. He's—he's he's not entirely hostile, but he's—he's he's definitely not exactly one of us. And uh, I got in an argument because we both grew up watching this shit. And uh, I got—I the argument was over whether or not the Federation was an imperialist power. I, of course, took the position that yes, of course, it's an imperialist power. You uh. would, would make the argument like, oh, they're not. They're not. It's not. It's not they're a post-colonial. Uh, they even because there's an episode. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, they're they've they've got. yeah, there's an episode uh, yesterday's Enterprise. Excellent uh, episode where it shows like an alternate time. It is a good episode, and it's where the Enterprise is parallel world that's always at war and converted into a warship. But the reality is not much needs to be done. The fact is. They rarely encounter the, the times where they encounter problems that they can't solve through violence, which they don't solve any problems through violence, very rare. Uh, but there's they always encounter situations where like they're nowhere near parity with the enemy or the potential adversary, right? They could basically always blow up their fucking planet, Uh so like any discussion is framed within that context, all diplomacy is framed within the context of like massive superiority. And that's also the you know persuasion element. It's like, well, maybe you should come along with us. Look, we have absolute uh superior firepower as well as the ability to create, you know, infinite resources for you. So like seems like a pretty good deal. And by the way, you uh, have to abandon all your traditions and your race and everything that has any meaning and just join the, join the, uh, the, what did you call it? I'm galactic homo, essentially that. Yeah. I mean, here's something I never understood. Like it, well, hmm. the relationship
2: between like for the Romulans, for example, and the Federation on some level you look at it and you're like okay why does why does the federation put up with the romulans like this this is a recurring uh,
0: romulans are not weak so it's not like they're putting up with them they're basically trying to yeah. contain them
2: so well, and okay, they're should trying to contain them to eradicate. but it, okay but it's like if if the romulans are such a threat why doesn't the federation put to use all of its resources and then solve the problem violently and then end the romulan threat once well, and for all like there's
0: in the federation's defense they're actually pursuing a fairly wise long-term strategy which is essentially encircling the romulans almost like the uh, george canaan uh, containment policy they're growing NATO. They're growing their base. They're growing their economy while Romulans are basically boxed in by the Klingons and the Federation. And meanwhile, the Federation is like the fastest growing uh, parasite on the galaxy with perhaps the exception of the Borg. But it, it was um, it's logical. It's like, look, uh, we're, we're sort of stalemating right now, but you're going to stay where you are and we're going to keep growing. And then we'll take care of you when we're really, really strong. I mean, it's pretty obvious to me, but.
2: Yeah. And so, okay. So this gets, at, this gets at another point. So the Federation is, is present, especially, okay. In TNG, Federation is presented as this on the face of it, this, um, liberal, high-minded, sophisticated, egalitarian organization of equal peoples. And they're seen as sort of the, the, the the smart guy heroes. They're, they're there to solve problems, although only when they want to, they're there to spread peace and justice and, and egalitarianism everywhere. But behind the scenes, they're pursuing this like (laughs) encircle and genocide strategy against the, the non-compliant Y- yeah. competitors it's this, it's, this is, it's it's totally this is the insane. thing about star trek
1: <laughs> and it's the same thing about liberalism itself you have what you're faced with are these constant contradictions because on the one hand you have this ethos of you know egalitarianism and peace and human rights and on the other hand you have the the realities and the implications of power You know, a state and an empire must always act a certain way. I mean, there are certain laws that you can't ignore because of some kind of superficial ideology that you're putting forth. It doesn't work that way. So, for example, in the case of Star Trek, uh, you have egalitarianism, but you have hierarchy. The the Federation, the Enterprise itself, is a pseudo-military organization with rank. Uh, You have diplomacy, yet it also has like war torpedoes on it, photon torpedoes or whatever. They could, you know, basically annihilate most worlds. I mean, it, it, it's, you see this come up always where it, the the kind of ethos of the, the liberal is is really the ethos of like a plant. And a plant can't actually wield power and the liberal wields power. So there's a contradiction here. How do we explain it? And another one that came up as we were talking, Adam mentioned like why aren't there many Q episodes when we were talking about the the atheism aspect? I, I, I uh I think that one of the main reasons there weren't many Q episodes is because it's too challenging. And it's the same reason there weren't too many alien creatures of uh, seriously alien, is because Q is effectively a god. So how do you explain you like that? It, like they alien say there are
2: creatures no- that aren't that aren't like hominids. Well Q like,
1: I- like- I don't know if you know Hans Q is this creature is it's this intelligence, I'm this familiar, super intelligence I'm familiar with that you. exists outside of yeah space time, and it his mere existence actually should call into question a lot of their ethos. I mean, he has all the characteristics of a god. There's nothing. He's he's basically an omnipotent, all-knowing being that exists outside of time.
0: Well. But so, the show tries to explain like, well, that by saying that he, I mean, th- there's many episodes where they kind of reveal that the Q were once like the humans. And this is like the narcissism that actually kind of discussed. Yeah, and, like, and the I reason we're so fascinated with you humans is because you remind, you remind us of us, you know, how, how could we not uh, be falling in love with, yeah, you know, you yeah. annoying yeah. preachy people. Uh, but uh, that was basically kind of the, Squaring the circle, I think.
1: Yeah, they have to. They always have to try, and it's full of contradictions. Another thing is product to different writers, but at the heart of it, I think just like liberalism in space doesn't make sense. It just doesn't. It doesn't. You know, you you need an impulse towards conquest and the survival of your own. I think that like Warhammer Forty K is probably more plausible. <laughs> <impossible. laughs> like space fantasy but it's more plausible uh, just that being said i
2: look it makes sense in the context of Mm -hmm. like cults and (laughs) race war (laughs)
1: between yeah yeah. i'm happy to like i can say my favorite and I, i said a few things about both science fiction and fantasy so Maybe it wouldn't surprise people to learn my all-time favorite science fiction is easily Dune. I mean, I mean, it, like without question, it's actually probably the the science fiction or fantasy, whatever you want to call it. I, I've read the, the most times, and I I also love the David Lynch film. And I also ah, I know that that new film is coming, and I just like like I don't think I can do it, man. Uh, like as tempted as I would be to watch, I, I I don't think I can watch it. Well, would you say that Dune
2: costume. is a more realistic idea of well, well of space than than Star Trek? Like, if,
1: if, if, it, it 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 Dune has nothing to do with space, really. That's kind of the thing. It's it's a uh, is it nothing to do with space. It has nothing to do with nerd shit. It all it is is taking realities. I mean, shit. Like, I think Dune was largely in tri- one of the big influences on on dune aside from Frank Herbert like eating psychedelic mushrooms in the Oregon sand dunes was uh the british empire's attempt to control the opium supply routes in the 19th century uh there what, what dune is is just, it's this again what makes for good it why speculative fiction fantasy sci-fi why it's good is cuz you can take elements of reality of history and you can move them to a new setting and to focus on just what you want to focus on and tell tell a story remote from from the rest of it and it, it it allows you to draw out some interesting things and uh, i would say dune is like some kind of like archaeo futuristic uh, fantasy so it, i mean it brings back feudalism and
0: i i, I actually haven't the seen the in, the in movie but i have I have read part of the book and I admit I didn't finish it, but it was interesting in a couple of ways, as far as I got, at least was that they had accepted the role of what arguably should be like the, the highest order of life in any society, you or your, your Mm -hmm. species or your race as the ultimate goal of what should have power at the expense of technology. And despite what, you know, I've said before, like I think that's very interesting because I accept that just like you know, Ted Kaczynski was I think fairly correctly, not completely, but roughly correct in assessing that technology is essentially just a tool and taken to extremes it can be used for incredible destruction. And so one of the things that I, uh, I remember from the book was that they had actually outlawed the usage of computers in many, many applications uh, in the long term goal of actually encouraging those capabilities in their people through the function of biology, which is a very slow process. But what it does is it actually builds up the people. Uh, through eugenics. Yes, through exactly. eugenics, Exactly. Exactly. And I thought that was a, an impressive concept. One
1: should not make a machine in the likeness of a man. Right. Yeah. Because they learn. It, that's what it's all about. I mean, if one of the recurring themes in Dune is the idea of race consciousness, I mean, that's his, like, if, it's about creating the Superman and the consequences that would come from that. Um, the ability to see through time and what that would lead to, and its implications for power. I think I like like if anyone's made it this far in in our shitpost post episode and they actually want to hear like because I don't I'm not going to keep talking about Dune because I I have way too much to say about it. If anyone ever wants to to hear a whole. Shit post on uh or even a actually maybe a competently prepared for episode on Dune. i'd be happy to do it because i have a lot to say i, I think it's the the best uh, nerds might disagree but um uh i think dune is is the greatest science fiction novel of all time like bar none uh, i think we should uh stop talking about star trek though
0: yeah let's uh, let's
1: wrap up you have anything else to say
0: no no, I mean, I okay, think it, it well, made its mark. I mean, it, it's arguably like the pioneer, uh, maybe ironically, of the particular ship in the bottle on television genre. But, um, you know, maybe it's run its course. I mean, maybe there's there's better stuff out there at this point. They're, they they rehashed it so much that they literally no, could no, not be... Ref- better out there.
1: That's, that's kind of what's...
0: Oh, I disagree. Charming I,
1: about it. No, like, I, I, I don't- think...
0: I think Battlestar Galactica surpassed it. Yeah, um, yeah, go ahead. I think, but and I, I just think that the stories weird, have like, been told. Metaphysical
1: Mormon supremacism? No,
0: not that crap. I just I enjoyed the writing on the, and the acting and the and the sort of pacing of that show quite a bit, and I thought it was fantastic. Mm-hmm. But well, in terms of like its I'll sort of other, philosophy, like, maybe that's maybe sci-fi where. TV. Yeah. Go ahead.
1: I I will much more safely. Recommend uh, Stargate SG One, despite being <laughs> uh, more or less a production production of the the U- U.S. Air Force. Yeah, um, it's it's, it's, I it's know, a good show. It's, really good <laughs> no, it's I, I did not
2: awesome.
0: I did there's not find really it particularly now. profound of uh, a series, but I did enjoy it. It was entertaining.
1: Oh, was great! That was great episodes. Yeah. I am gonna I'll defend Stargate SG One. Okay, uh, and the other one I'll I'll throw out there. Is uh, the series uh, *Farscape*, which
2: nah. uh,
1: that's the, uh, that's that's a very unique one. It, it breaks a lot of rules of both TV and sci-fi, and it's mm-hmm. it's good. It's fun stuff. Um, it's got also probably the, some of the best uh, Khazar milkers in television. So, you know, uh... <laughs> when are we gonna get a live-action of the, form, action, in the form, body Show? A, body of Black. I oh, wouldn't. Well, you never will. Uh, that's not gonna happen. <laughs> it would be too interesting. That's why. A Games Workshop and, and B, yeah, it would be, it would be, yeah, yeah. They they would have some problems with that. They already have a problem. Like too many like people who are into like I don't know like whatever you people who like to like paint models and that kind of stuff. Uh, what you say? Like too too many of these people, they can't have. I don't know, they can't have too many white boys or like uh, approaching middle aged white boys uh, being enthusiastic about like genocidal space fascism. I don't, I don't think that's something they're going to want to promote.
0: Well, I, I have an idea to wrap this up. Um, since we spent the majority of our sci fi time on Star Trek, I would like each of us to name their favorite quote. I'm putting you on the spot a little bit, but there's many from that episode from that series and whatever episode you want to find, uh, if it's not recurring, that's fine. But there are many memorable lines, especially from next generation. So who would like to go first?
1: Uh, Hans, can you name a single quote from star Trek? Uh, uh, um, nothing that
2: really, stands out i, can, I have two I can, so i'll give you one scream, if you want i can scream con i'll, I'll
1: get give you if I, uh, I can easily give you mine Oh, uh, and mine's ironic because i'm not really a very big war fan i think he makes for like a good foil but um <laughs> i always remember like i easily remember this quote and uh
0: i think i know what you're gonna uh, say you ago. say it to so, us thinking in thinking private chat
1: Yeah, thinking about what you can't control only wastes energy and creates its own enemy. Yeah, it's good. He's basically paraphrasing Marcus Aurelius, but yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
2: Stoicism. Oh, you know what? You know what? Think. Okay, speaking of Worf, I do remember an interaction between Q and Worf, where Q was like trying to convince the crew that he lost his power. And he's like, what do I have to do to convince you? And Worf says something like die. And Q says Yeah, that hey, is yeah. He yeah. says, Have you eaten any good books lately? Or <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, have you eaten yeah, any yeah, good yeah. books lately? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Good, You're good,
0: good memory. There you go. Good.
1: I'm proud of you, Hans. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay. I have two and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to end on a positive note, so I'm not going to say the bad one last, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start with resistance is futile. That's, that's super famous. But to give us a positive spin for once on this show, to boldly go where no man has gone before the original series opening. They changed that in The Next Generation.
2: Did they really? What did yeah. they change it to? You
0: mean no that? one has gone before. No
2: one. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah,
1: they did. Isn't there a isn't there? You a know series... that Star Trek uh, original series had the first interracial kiss on television. Yes, yes, of course. Yeah. I've
0: been, I've been told a that all my life.
1: Out, isn't there a series out right now? like
2: Star Trek STD or media, yes. whatever it's called. Yeah. Uh, I, I was going to say they're so yeah, it's, it's unreflective actually, it's enough. Actually it's actually incredible. that. <laughs> yeah. incredible. Did they yeah. still have the uh, go where no man has gone before? Is it like go where no... I don't know. I don't, know. I have a, I don't, I don't
1: watch
2: television anymore.
0: No. <laughs> go where no identity has gone before. <laughs> <laughs>
2: where no gender has gone before.